Thanks for joining us in our study of the book of Joshua. This Old Testament book presents a theological history of God as the sovereign promise maker and promise keeper who brings to pass all his gracious purposes. It calls Christians to live in light of the gospel blessings secured for them by Jesus, the better Joshua. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in him. Take your Bibles, let's go to Joshua chapter 3. I don't know how many people come in here that struggle with doubt. Um, because it comes at the weirdest times in the darkest night and we actually start thinking through all the things that go on around us and we think, is this really real? Like, is this God here? I can't see him. It's very hard to know. I think you're probably untrue or probably just not telling the truth if you've never considered, is this actually right? I can tell you that not I, but the Scriptures tell us the remedy for this problem. It's to preach the Word of God to us so that we'd have the light of Christ shown into our hearts that we'd see the problems of our own misbelief or disbelief in Him. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at Joshua 3 together. So let's read all of chapter 3. If I was probably a little bit better and had it together, I think we would do all of chapter 3 and 4 because 3 and 4 is an entire unit together. However, I just don't have the ability to get it all and help us. So what we're going to do is we're going to go through chapter 3 today. It's a full pericope or a story, but chapter 4 helps us understand the meaning of chapter 3. And it's all supposed to be one. So what we're going to try to do though today is just go through chapter 3 and set us up for next week. So let me read. Verse 1. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim. And they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the, Lord, and commanded the people, As soon as you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord, your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you shall go. For you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take 12 men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan, 
with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people. And as soon as those bearing the Ark had come to as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away. At Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan, and those flowing down toward the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off, and the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all of Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. Let's pray. God, would you be the mighty warrior today who comes and just takes our heart captive? I recognize that not everyone in this room knows you, and I pray that the devil will be put to rest because of yours. And he's not to rest, but he'll be destroyed as you take him from this place right now. And the hardness of our own heart and the rebellion of our own heart, the pride, all the different things that come in and sneak and take over the kingdom of our heart. And I pray that Jesus would have his way. I pray this morning that as the preaching of the word goes out that you would work. We trust in you and you alone, so we call on your name to work. Lord, I have no other thing to call on. I, I am not wise with words, but Lord, you tell us to proclaim the foolishness of the cross to those who believe it is the power of God to save. So I pray today that you would be at work through your word because of the beauty and the source found in you, that you would use it for your good, that you would be for your glory and our good. We rest in your care and ask that we would have ears to hear and eyes to see and that we would be hearers who receive the word and do it. We love you. We ask for you to work. In Jesus' name, amen. We're here on the brink of the Jordan River. Remember that after the announcement of Moses' death in chapter 1, verse 1, verse 2 comes, and the very first thing that we're told, or Joshua's told to do, is to go, arise, over the, arise and go over this Jordan and all these people with you. We had a wonderful preamble. That's that first part, the speech of God to Joshua that helped us understand that this is a divine, long-awaited, promise-filled opportunity for fruition. All the promises that God has made are coming true. We're seeing those things played out here on the edge of the Jordan River. And that he says to go in and take this land for your possession. In God's opening speech, we received word that was the time of the promises that he had made to Abraham and all of his descendants that this land would be theirs, specifically to Moses. And as he knew that this time would come, we realized that it's Joshua's job to lead these people into this land and to do what seems almost impossible and complete this task that God has given him to do. To be an encouragement and to ground Joshua as the new leader, God promises his presence with him. He says to him, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. God's speech then is, is really properly highlighted, and it's the, the most important part in this speech for us to, us to understand the key to success or prosperity is to obey. 
is to obey his word. So much so that it says you need to be dominated by it. That law should never depart from your lips. It should be what you meditate on day and night. It should be what dominates you as a people. You should not turn from the left or to the right. And if you will do this, you will have good success. We've learned this so far. This is the way we're supposed to act. This is the way Joshua and his people are supposed to act. He finishes this speech reminding Joshua that his real need is not just obedience. What he needs is actually what comes from that, which is the presence and power of Yahweh. If he doesn't have that, he hasn't got anything. But he knows that if he knows and trusts God this way and obeys him, God promises his presence and his power. So therefore, these promises are lofty. I mean, what we're talking about here is then an entire people crossing the Jordan River, going in to take a land where people dwell and live and are probably in a superior position to win the battle. We're talking about them going in with the presence of God. These are big, big promises. In the first verse of chapter 3, though, we find Joshua moving toward the edge of the river in obedience. He's obeying the Lord, taking steps. Can we stop for a moment and remember this is a military endeavor? What that means, though, if I can talk to maybe the sailors, the Marines, uh, every other offensive military personnel in this room, would you take into enemy territory with you families, civilians, all that group with you? That would seem ridiculous and really counterproductive. Like these guys are saying with their families, follow me, I don't know what the Lord's going to do, but he told me that we are supposed to go into this land with all of you, with my sons and daughters and my wife. You are to come into this land, enemy territory. That's a strange way. You'd think that maybe God would maybe provide some sort of provision where they could all, all of the other ten tribes could go with the last two, I mean, uh, Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, half-tribe Manasseh, and stay over there on the eastern side, and all the men just go and destroy the land, secure it all down, and then they bring the other ten tribes back in. But that's not what happens. He says, all of this people will go into this land. It's important. This is part of his understanding of what it means to be whole as well. This is a military endeavor. One would think that God would do this. So as we enter chapter 3, we're seeing Joshua obey the word of the Lord in totality. He's not taking his own wisdom and putting it against God's. He is obeying. He is leading them to the edge of this river. As we here sit... We are in camp. What that means is that no one's setting up permanent structures. No one's getting to know new friends. No one's getting to know the area better and know the roads around the area. This is a place of stopping before they move on. It is not a destination. It's almost more of like a checkpoint until we go on to the next place as we receive instruction. It's more of a holding zone. But the orders come. And as they did when they first heard, the people first heard from the officers of the people, they come again and they tell them the next steps. These officers say, as soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. There you shall be a distance between you, between about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. The officers don't give us a map. They don't really give us directions. They don't give us a rendezvous point. They don't give us a time. Instead, they say something incredible. They say, look to the ark and follow that. 
That is your guide. That is what you are supposed to have your focus on. Now, if you're kind of like me, probably our best information about the Ark of the Covenant is through Raiders of the Lost Ark and Indiana Jones. That's what we think of when we're talking about that, the small gold chest that melts people's faces off. Let's go back to Scripture for a moment and try to understand what this Ark represents. When we're talking about this, we're not just talking about some shiny relic. This was a physical chest inlaid and covered with pure gold. Remember its source. This is not something that the people made to represent their information that they knew about God. God prescribed this. He was the one that told them to make this Ark of the Covenant. And therefore, its source is found in God. And its value is not in the gold that it was made of. The value is its rich theological significance and its use in Israel. The Ark symbolized God's sovereign power and his rule over his people. The ark symbolized God's holiness. Remember that the chest contained the stone tablets with the words of God that codified who he was, showing his character, his holiness to his people, his perfection. Remember the ark symbolized the need for a mediator. It held the rod of Aaron, the great high priest. It symbolized God as provider. It held a jar of manna, reminding them of God's great provision in the desert that he would take care of them, and he did. It symbolized his justice. It was on the lid, of, or the, the covering, or we would call it the mercy seat, that once a year, the high priest would come and sprinkle blood on the Day of Atonement. It was in this act that the symbolic sacrifice showed the blood of the sacrifice coming between the presence of God as he sat on the mercy seat and the disobeyed law that the people couldn't quite handle. There had to be an answer for that disobedience. And there was in the death of that lamb. As that sacrificial atonement showing us that one would come who would forever, forever answer the problem of sin. So it is a symbol of justice. But more than any of these things, although they're all wonderful, the ark symbolized the presence of God. It was a physical representation of God's divine presence with his people. I'm sure that some of these knew. They remember Moses' words in Numbers 10, 35, and 36. Let me read it for you and see how Moses treats the interplay between the ark and God's presence as he calls to him. And whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, return, O Lord, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. This ark represented God's presence with his people. This is the first, excuse me, this is the first we've heard in the book of Joshua all about the ark. It's assumed, we know it's there, but this is the first time it comes to light. And man, has it come to light. If you keep your eye out in chapter 3 and 4, we're going to see it mentioned nine times in chapter 3 alone. Four times it's talked about it, which is the same thing. It is a huge point of discussion in the first chapter here. And also as you get in chapter 4 as well. The presence of God is undeniable here. We have to pick up on that. It was fitting then, and you know what? It was purposeful instruction when the officers told the people to look to the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord for their direction, for their timing, for their leading into this place where they were going to cross over the river. The officers tell us not only to follow this ark, but to follow at a distance. 
probably about a half a mile, or if you're really good with cubits, about 2,000 cubits. But the question for us, like immediately we're like, why? Well, oh, we know it's the holiness of God. We, we, we want to stay far back from it. There's something to that, but our author tells us right here why. Look what he says. We may be something about holiness, but remember, we're talking about roughly 2 million people plus that have to cross this Jordan River. If no space was given between the ark and that group of people, think about how much that would be enveloped at the front if they're right there. The people in the sides and the back have no idea where they're going. They're not in a single file line. They're in this huge mass moving together forward. And so this instruction is extremely practical so that they could have a line of sight as to where they're going. What a beautiful picture of seeing before us our leader, the presence of God showing us exactly where we are to go. In this practical way to see that we are looking forward to this God as he leads us. Joshua takes the microphone. He tells the people, consecrate yourselves. Why? Because tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Now, this seems like, okay, okay, all right, I don't know what this exactly means, but consecrate yourselves, wonders tomorrow, that's great. Why would Joshua have the people consecrate themselves? Uh, do you know what we're talking about? Uh, it's kind of like what happened before they went to Sinai. We're talking about ritual washings. We're talking about abstinence from sex. We're talking about abstinence from certain foods. We're talking about a physical consecration, a separation from all the other peoples of the world that they would know they are set apart to deal with their covenant-keeping God. This is very serious to the point that they would consecrate themselves. Why? Well, because the Lord is going to do wonders. Did you catch that? The people prepared not just for something they would see or stand back and watch, but an experience where they would interact with Yahweh, the living God, where they would come and see him do wonders. This word wonders is significant for us. Uh, other places in Scripture, it's called marvelous deeds, wondrous acts. It's what sets God off over and over and over again throughout all the Old Testament Scriptures as different from all the rest of the people and all their gods and what they can or can't do. God always sets himself apart. His wondrous acts are different from everyone else. It's like the Pharaoh, uh, his sorcerers. They could, they could do some cheap tricks at the beginning with snakes and stuff. At a certain point, there's like, we don't have any magic that even comes close to this. We don't have an excuse for this. We don't know what's going on. And eventually, if you remember, those same sorcerers couldn't stand before Yahweh because of the boils that were on them. They were not up to the task to understand or to match the wondrous acts of Yahweh. And so what God tells them is, prepare yourself, consecrate yourselves, because I am going to do wondrous acts. In other words, Joshua is setting the stage for us to realize that something monumental is about to happen. Something that the other nations cannot explain. Something like the plagues of Egypt, or the separation of the Red Sea, or something like the people meeting God on Mount Sinai. This lead up, and this direct words here to the priests in verse 6, guarantee that we are about to experience God in a way that every other generation will talk about. It will be a word that is remembered. This is a historic event. It's not the run-of-the-mill miracle that you just see happen every day. What we're talking about is something, again, that the Pharaoh's sorcerers could not compete with. The miracle was enormous in scope and power. 
And there's only one answer for this type of a miracle. Worship. Standing back, not understanding how this could be any other thing, anything else except for God himself. In verse 6, Joshua expressly states that the priests are to take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass before the people. And you know what? They obey. They do exactly what they're supposed to do. This little note here is actually reminding us of the nature of this relationship between God and his people. God speaks to Joshua. Joshua obeys and speaks to the people. The people respond to Joshua's word in obedience. That's how it is supposed to work. God-ordained authority is right and good. This is what we're seeing here. They obey. The author then brings us to verse 7. Speech again. Take a look. This is not just anyone's speech. This is the Lord speaking. He says to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that you may know, that they may know, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the water in the Jordan. What is God getting at here? What is his purpose of telling him these things? He, why should he exalt Joshua, a man, in the eyes of Israel? And why should he then talk about the ark standing still on the edge of the Jordan River? What's the purpose here? Well, first of all, the text actually just tells us. Look, look at the second half of verse 7. You see that phrase, that they may know? That's like saying, so that, or the purpose is, so that they may know that as I was with Moses, I will be with you. It is so that the people may know that God is present with their leader, Joshua. They realize then, Moses, who was their leader, died. That's how the whole book starts. Moses died. But the God of Moses did not die. And now, the people are seeing Joshua exalted for the sake of knowing the presence of Yahweh. He is the same. He will continue in his promises. He will continue to preserve his people and flourish them in the land. That is his purpose, and he has not died. Joshua then, just a man, but he will be used to declare the glory of Yahweh and encourage the people that, G that God himself is near. And again, we have this ark. Why is that brought into the picture? I think it's the same reason we see Joshua exalted. It is to show that God is near and that this miracle is no natural phenomenon. He is keeping in front of them the presence of God at all times, showing them that no earthly power could do what is going to be done and that all the things ought to be attributed to this God alone, the presence of Yahweh. Joshua calls the people again. I love this one. He's just heard from the Lord, right, that he's going to be exalted. He's going to get it. Like the people will follow him. And you would think he's like, okay, listen to me. Here we go. But this is what he says. He calls the covenant people of Yahweh together and says, listen to the words of the Lord your God. Calling them to the highest authority. Divine authority. Joshua understood. It was a derivative authority that he had. It was God's authority. And he was a mouthpiece for the Lord. A servant of the Lord. He gives them two major promises. They're kind of, as Macbeth says, help them screw their courage to the sticking place. Except they're not quite like the way that we think about this and like let's really get ready for battle and be courageous and strong. They find their confidence not in themselves or their ability to conquer. It was never that way. Chapter, chapter 1 declared that to us. 
Be strong and courageous wasn't something that you and I can muster up inside of us. It was be strong and courageous, being careful to do all of the law, being careful to follow my commands. If you will do this, then you will have success. Not if you just get really courageous, you can go kill everybody, and that's how you'll have success. But rather, in my presence alone will you have success. Pointing us back to Yahweh himself. These two promises then we realize are are very important. He first promises God's presence, but then he also promises the victory and the conquest. Listen to Joshua's word in verse 10. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. He says, let me tell you how you will know the living God, what a designation compared to the dead gods of Canaan, the living God, this is how you will know that Yahweh, the living God, is among you and will drive out the peoples of Canaan. Okay, how, Joshua? 11, 12, and 13, here we go. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now therefore take 12 men from the tribes of Israel from each tribe, each, man, each tribe of man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. Joshua, hit us. Tell us how we'll know that this is the living God. Joshua says, look, or the word that he used here, behold. It's almost as you can see his arm saying, look, the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God is passing over before you. Keep your eyes here at the presence of God himself. You don't have to fear. God is going before you. You need to follow and obey. But that's not all. That would be enough. That would be enough. But instead, he continues on. Joshua gives them more. He tells them, when the very tips of the feet of the priests who are carrying the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, in other words, when God's presence comes to the edge of this river, the Jordan waters will be cut off. They will stop flowing and will stand in one place in a heap. I'm not quite sure what they were expecting would happen, They knew from verse 2 that they were supposed to go into this land across this Jordan. I don't know if they're thinking, okay, we're going to build a bridge or we're going to teach all of our kids to swim or everyone's going to float. Like, I don't know how this is going to happen, but it's going to happen. We trust God. That's why we're here. We're going to follow. I don't know exactly what's going to happen. Like, like for a moment, just think about the spies, right? They had to get across that river. We have two highly trained spies who their job is to be able to weather tough terrain. They are trained to do this type of reconnaissance, to cross raging rivers, to survive, to make it. But I'm not talking about two spies. I'm talking about two million plus people. Think about that trying to cross that river with women and children. How in the world are you supposed to do that? Joshua told them, Yahweh is here. The Lord your God is. His presence is here. And he created this land, this dirt that you see, the rocks you see, he made that. The water you see flowing in front of you, he made that. All the processes that feed these rivers that come down into this, he made all of that. The Lord of all the earth is here. And what will he do? He will stop this Jordan River. Joshua has no problem telling them and saying over and over again that this God himself will do it. I cannot overemphasize to us enough 
the importance of God's presence here. You have to get this. We have to see that this was him and his presence. And it was important that all would see that it wasn't something else doing this. It was God himself and his presence. No one else can take the credit. No one else can have any explanation of why it happened. No one else will rob him of his glory. This is Yahweh who's done this. Even if, maybe there's some doubters in here, even if there's a way that it stopped up the river and we had it gone dry at one time, that's, that's possible. This is a direct speech. The fact that Joshua's prophecy is to say at this time is when it's going to happen and then it happens at this time lends credence to the fact that Joshua is telling the truth about the one that he knows, God. Remember, he's a prophet. That means he is both foretelling, he's telling something that's going to happen, but he's also telling forth truth. Both of those things are true in this case. He is telling us and helping us understand the theological significance of what has happened. It wasn't just that there was a mudslide somewhere further up the river. It was that God, the God of the earth, got involved and stopped the flow of the Jordan River when exactly they put their feet inside. Who else did that? No one else did. It was God. It was Yahweh himself. Now, for a moment, did anyone notice that I skipped right over verse 12? What a strange little verse to insert in the middle of this speech of confidence and the power and the wonders of Yahweh. I mean, what in the world did you stick this for here, Joshua? Right? I mean, he says, Now therefore take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And then he goes right back to the narrative. He goes right back to the commands. And then he picks right back up the rest of the promise and the miracle. <laughs> what are you doing? Why would you put this in here? He doesn't come back to them. He doesn't say anything else. And they're all the way at the end of the, at the narrative, and we don't have any idea why the 12 people are chosen. Well, if you read to chapter 4, and I would encourage you to do that, not now, but when you have a chance, read chapter 4, you're going to realize that there is a whole jumbling of events here. All kinds of significance is being laid on this and trying to help us understand each part of this and why we should be paying attention to the crossing of the Jordan River. Verse 12 then, all right, and we're going to do a lot to work through that next week. Verse 12, though, is showing us a small snippet of what's to come. It's giving us like this cliffhanger, like, why would he put that there? Almost so all of us are like, that doesn't make sense. Anyway, get back to the story. But we remember it. And we're like, oh, maybe I'm supposed to pay attention to that. I wonder if we'll come back to that. Well, I'll tell you now, we will come back to it in chapter 4. He is no dummy. Like, he is a very clever author. He is using this for us to see and almost say, oh, something else is supposed to happen. I, I want to know what that detail is about. And he won't let us hang. We will come back to that next week, not right now. So let's go back and finish up our text in verse 14. Now, the rest of the chapter here is kind of like a live news broadcast. I mean, we've heard what was supposed to happen. We know the promises we know all the pieces and all the characters involved. We know what's supposed to happen, the expectations. And it's time for the commentators to stop talking and to just have the camera roll as to watch the people go through what they're supposed to happen here. We go away from speech. Notice that. Verses 14 through 17, the speech has stopped. And we're watching it unfold in front of us. Backing out to watch what God is going to do through his people here. Let's pick up in verse 14. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, so they're obeying, they're doing the right things, and as soon as those bearing the Ark 
had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped in the brink of the water. Now the Jordan overflows all of its banks throughout the time of harvest. What? You didn't finish the story. What are you doing? Like, we're right there. We're like leading up to it. We're ready to go. And now we're going to get Don Slater telling us the update of the weather? Who cares? Like, that's the, I don't want to know about that. I want you to finish the story. I mean, we're already watching it. Don't stop it now. I mean, we're right here with the people of Israel. I mean, they're out, you know, Israel here, about 2,000 cubits. They're watching the, what God is doing through the Ark of the Covenant right at the edge of the Jordan. We finally come to the edge of the water, and the final, the, almost like in slow motion, you can kind of see it. The priests are right about to put their feet in, and let's break for a commercial here and tell you about the, um, the river water and what's going on there. Oh, it's maddening. You're like, you got to finish the story, Joshua. He's doing this on purpose for us. He is trying to help us walk the same path and see that, that build up. We're like, ready, we're excited. It's almost as if we're screaming at the television, right? Go, obey, we're here. We know the presence of God is with us. Let's go, we, we, we believe it. The, the ark is here, everything has been faithfully obeyed. We're ready, and now... Come on, finish the story. All that's built up into this. Notice the content of this little aside, though. He's doing something else. He's getting us a cliffhanger, but he's doing something else here. He's showing us the magnitude of the miracle about to happen. He is showing us that this is probably the worst possible time of year to try to cross this river. It's humongous. It's overflown all of its banks places where water's not supposed to be, and that makes a big mess. And he says, probably this is like the worst time ever to take two million plus people across the Jordan River. Anyway, back to what's going on. We go back to verse 16. The live feed flips back on. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan. And those flowing down... <clears throat> toward the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. And the people pressed over, I'm sorry, and the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. Yes, they've done it. I can't believe it. We, we made it. He said this was going to happen. The people crossed over. A miracle has taken place. And we're not just talking about when the hockey team wins against Russia. We're, we're talking about like a true miracle of like all natural phenomenon stops and God stops it so that his people can go across a raging river. The Lord was true to his promise. The Lord stood and rose up a huge amount of water very far away. We're probably talking about like 19 miles away. Now think about that. Two million people have to cross this river. They're not going to do it in single file. If they were to do so, it would take them days and days and days to try to get across this. So the fact that he would back it up so far allows the breadth of this group to be much wider to move across the Jordan. It makes it not only like physically possible, but it shows his divine providence and his care for his people recognizing they had to get across here. He opens the gateway to the promised land, and this gate is wide enough to bring all of God's people in. That's important for us. All of God's people, not one that he leave out. 
The Lord was true to his promise. He cut off the waters. He made a way for the people to enter the land, all of his covenant people. But do you realize what just happened? Do you realize that it means something more than just this amazing miracle? The miracle is amazing. It is amazing. But we are not to be enamored by the miracle. Look how Joshua brings us back. 17 is like this interesting verse that's important, but it's really, really, really important. He brings us right back to the ark. He brings us right back to the priest. He brings us right back to the presence of God. Look at verse 17. Now the priests bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. This is not about the miracle. This is about the God of that miracle. We've said it before. You can have the gifts, but man, if you have the giver, you get it all. This is not about the miracle. This is about the God who said, when those feet, the feet of the priest go through there, I will stop it. And he does it. I told you I would be with you. Do you want me to prove it? I'll prove it. Put those feet in there and I'm going to stop this river. He does it. A phenomenal action that God, like no one else can even have anything to do to anything close with this. But on the day that he says, I will do this, feet go in the river, stop. That's what happens. It's, it's amazing. Brothers and sisters, I would encourage you to good works. I would encourage you to exhort one another and to, and to, and to obey Christ. But today... I just want to call you to one thing. As we've walked and seen this play out, I call us to be amazed by our God and to recognize the divine power of Yahweh and the fact that He is present here. It is Him who deserves all praise. He is the God who stretched out His hand and struck Egypt with all of His wonders. That's the word that's used in Exodus. He is the God who showed Israel marvelous deeds at the Red Sea. That was also wonders. While the cloud was with them by day and the fire was with them by night. And when he splits the rocks open in the wilderness and abundant drink pours out. This is Psalm 78 showing us that this is all a wondrous act or deed. Showing us that this is God alone who could do it. Nobody else can do these things. He is the God who of all the Psalms proclaim marvelous works, O Lord, are yours wonders. Joshua 3, 5, he says, consecrate yourself because today the Lord will do wonders among you. This is a front row seat to all the things that the Old Testament say are marvelous about our God. This is no small thing. He is the God that David tells us to declare in Psalm 96, 3. Listen to this. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. Wonders. These types of situations are to be declared to the world. Not to mention all the other wonderful, marvelous things that he has done, but the ones that I just listed to you are all directly connected to these words here. These marvelous acts, these wonders that God alone can do. My question to you then, what will you do with this Lord? Some of you treat him as though this is an ancient story, a myth like it's an epic that we like to think about, an amazing thing to talk about, but uh, there's no bearing on your life. To that group, I would say, 
Can you please pay attention for a moment? As we will see in the beginning of chapter 5, the Canaanite kings had a response that was kind of right. They saw the wondrous acts, but you know what happened to them? Instead of repenting and believing, their hearts melted in them, and they prepared for war against this God. Do not fight the God who can stop rivers or can bring the nation of Egypt to its knees through his wonders. This God is not to be trifled with. Friend, repent and believe the gospel. God isn't just the God of this Old Testament story. He's the God of today. He's the God of wonders that are no less miraculous in Jesus Christ. So I call you to repent of your sin and to trust Jesus alone. In Jesus, he has made a way of escape. Remember his name, Joshua, Yahweh delivers, Yahweh saves. Turn to this great God of wonders and trust him alone. He will not disappoint. Brothers and sisters, the applications for us are numerous. There's so many things we could say about this. I'm not going to try to give you too much here because next week, Joshua's going to do that for us. He's going to highlight different parts of this narrative and he's going to bring the application for us. However, today, you aren't to walk away and be like, well, I've got to wait until next week to see what happens. No. We have experience and walk through with them this great Lord. How will you respond to him? I'll tell you what you're supposed to do. Worship. That's not just singing. That means your whole life as unto the Lord, that you would love him. Because when you see him clearly, the only right response is worship and love for our Lord God who has given himself to us. To see him clearly is to love him. For no, else, no one else can do such wonderful deeds as our God has done. Let's pray. God, thank you for this text. Thank you for the reminder that you are not just back here, but Lord, as we'll see next week, that these are to be remembered. And that's why we preach this this morning, the wonders of Yahweh, the wonders of a God who can stack up waters in a heap so that all of the people can cross is according to your presence and your power. And we ask that we would wonder today and we would be amazed, and Lord, that we would worship. As Paul says, that we would be a living sacrifice. We thank you. We just, we thank you. We don't deserve any of your love, and yet you have loved us, your steadfast love. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons on Joshua, and for more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.